politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew our life, liberty, property, humanity, society, all of it here at CR Podcast. Your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today, Tuesday, March 28th. It happens to be the anniversary in 1774 of the Coercive Acts that were passed by the, the British Parliament in response to the Boston Tea Party. And uh, we've had our coercive acts for years, but somehow we don't have the same, the same drive to act and respond and to remain sovereign and independent and free and moral and just. And the reason is very simple. I think we all know we touched on it yesterday. The rot is within. The problem with America is not the governing class. I mean, it is, but it's a reflection of the people. And sadly, a lot of people that we consider our voters. And until we have our own revival, we won't even be able to have a national divorce. Because in order to have a national divorce, you need to be disgusted by the culture and the people around you. I don't know. We kind of live the same lifestyle. Today, I want to talk about the fact that you know, we talk a lot about the government being corrupt and the government being deboshed. But the problem is, even if we solve that a public policy level, okay, end this, end that, end this tyrannical thing on healthcare, on political persecutions, you have it embedded in the people. So we're going to have a riveting interview today with, with a, a lawyer for those who died in the hospitals under the COVID genocide. The fact that your everyday doctor bought into this and has become genocidal, what was done in the hospitals, that we're going to discuss. But first, we obviously have two big stories from yesterday that also exemplify a culture that even if you fix things at a governmental level, the damage that they've been done from their policies going unrivaled and un, um, undeterred, really, for, for decades, and then culminating with this generation, the trannyism, you have the tranny uh, assault that killed six people, terrorist attack on the Christian school in Nashville, and then you have Rand Paul's staffer, in critical condition, stabbed multiple times right near Capitol Hill. You can't even walk near Capitol Hill anymore um, because crime is so bad. Just those two stories alone encapsulate the culture we're in. And by the way, I don't even need to get to the economy. Our sponsor today is Birch Gold. You know, Birch... Um, I, I was just on the phone with them recently because I'm working on converting my IRA. Uh, those of you who wait until crunch time to do your taxes, you owe extra money. Uh, you could put $6,000, at least for last year, uh, per spouse into an IRA. Um, uh, where are you going to put it? In Vanguard and Fidelity? BlackRock? Or are you going to put it into something that is surging? Gold is now above 2000 It's really very close to a record high which was set right you know, in the wake of those months of the lockdown. And so you could see the intensity of the time we're living in. Gold is a hedge against the Fourth Reich. If you want to actually put your nest egg into something of value, text 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold. And then you could talk to, they have the phone numbers there, talk to one of their specialists, and they'll, they'll tell you exactly how, they feel for your given situation, you want to put in ten, twenty thousand dollars they'll hold your gold, silver, different types of bullions. They'll tell you what sort of mix is good for you. will be held in places like Dallas, Delaware, Vegas. They have different uh, safety deposits, pure precious metals that you could hold for yourself. This is getting really bad with inflation. It ain't getting better, but gold is always there for you. Text Daniel to 989898 today. So, you know, obviously, as always, we're going to have these gun control debates back and forth and back and forth, like always. And you know, I'm obsessed with guns, and our sponsors are guns. I love guns, but... <laughs> I hate to say it, but just like tax cuts aren't the solution to everything, 
guns are not the solution to everything. Of course we're right that guns aren't the problem with these shootings. And of course, if you're going to have all these shootings, it's better you don't have a gun-free zone, and it's better that they don't know that they're going into a place where they're the only ones with a gun, and that's all true. But it also is kind of shortchanging things to suggest, oh, oh, you just arm everyone. This is much deeper than gun policy, yay or nay. What we're seeing is a cultural rot gut that is beyond belief. So in general, you have a bunch of young people that are doped up and mental illness. Now, this is not mental illness the way the media makes it out to be like, oh, you know, there's like a mental problem. It's a cultural mental health problem induced by our cultural elites and our policies and our politics and our law and everything. How you make an entire generation mentally ill, that's almost all of this the culture of violence that's celebrated. But then we have this particular branch of it, and I didn't even realize, people have pointed out, we had a Colorado Springs shooter, we had a Denver shooter, there's been four others at least that have been trannies. So this is a big growing portion of the mental illness among the most volatile people. Remember, the percentage of people that identify as a balls cutter, whether they did it or not, and the understanding that 42% of them are suicidal, we have a major problem on our hands. And to me, the bigger lesson is not so much guns, it's that we have these ticking time bombs all over the place, and we can't avoid them. You cannot share a country with people like this, and this is why we need a national divorce. Because otherwise, it rubs off on our own people. Our children are exposed to the same culture. We need to go into enclaves where we eradicate this entire culture, extirpate any mention of this sort of mental illness that grooms an entire generation to be this way. So it's a general cultural rock gut that we have destroyed children, we've destroyed their education, we've destroyed their life experience, they're a bunch of robots on screens all day. And then part of being on a screen all day is that you soak up the new current fad. And obviously, trannyism is a big one. So you make a bunch of teenagers depressed as anything, teenagers, young adults depressed as anything, so they're going to latch on to an array of insane societal ills that are pushed on, 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 on the internet. And trannyism is certainly one of them. So again, it's revival or bust is true. Um, but I would argue that the revival or bust is, we, we usually think, oh, the, the bad people, the leftists, the liberals, they need a revival. No, 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 no. They're beyond fix. We need a revival so we actually understand that they are so disgusting that we cannot share a country with them and we need national divorce. And again, it's not like overnight a button you press. It's in areas where we supposedly outnumber them. We actually govern in accordance with our numbers and our supposed values, and that will create this self-sorting. So yeah, let all the trannies go to their areas leave our areas, and we can actually live in some sort of peace. But then you have the other story, which was Rand Paul's staffer stabbed in the head and neck in critical condition. We found out yesterday, but it seems like it was on Saturday, a couple blocks away from the Capitol. We already had a congresswoman, a Democrat congresswoman physically attacked. There's been a number of attacks on staffers. So first, I just want to say it's interesting. The Capitol Hill police have established spying regional field offices in Florida and California to spy on on political enemies, yet they won't even defend their own staff and members in their own cesspool of an area. But what it broadly demonstrates is, again, there is such a runaway culture. We talked about this a little bit um, on last Friday with a Claremont Institute fellow, uh, Jeremy Carl, who's writing a book on this, 
but the culture of violence that has been groomed among among young blacks is so untenable. I don't even know how you live with it. I don't even know what you do with it. I don't know how you get around it. You see what I'm saying? You you could you could ban all tranny you know stuff now in the bathrooms and the pronouns and the uh, obviously the castration and the sports and the drag shows. But the amount of damage that has already been done from a generation of inaction has seeped into the culture. It's not just a political or a legal issue anymore. What do you do with that? And likewise with the culture of violence. You know, even if we started locking up violent criminals. So this guy, you look at his rap sheet, he should have been in prison a lot longer. And evidently he literally got out of prison the day before when he did this. And... If you look at DC's laws, if this staffer, you know, praise God, God willing, hopefully survives and is not deceased, so it's not a homicide, he will not serve the rest of his life in prison, but he should. Right? I think we all agree. You get a violent guy, he forced people into prostitution, served 12 years. It was actually a federal sentence, 12 years. And. Then you get out, and a day later, you do this. You stab someone to within an inch of their life, assuming the person doesn't die. That should be life. But I'm telling you, he won't get it. But even if we did fix it, there is enough cultural rock gut. There is enough trannyism. There is enough mental disorders. And I don't mean like you're born with, with you know, Down syndrome or autism, those type of mental. I'm talking about this like zombie mental illness that is that is culturally induced, not genetically. I would say that's man-made. Now we can talk about certain other things being man-made from vaccines, but that's a different story. That's man-made. And what are we going to do about that? And the culture of violence. You can't live in these areas. But first, we have to make our areas actually, truly safe and secure. Family values. Do our own people really hate this enough and feel the pain? And I think, I think legitimately a lot of people do. There's no political leadership and guidance. And that's what we're trying to create here with our Liberty Strike Force teams. You can join one of them at conaction.network. We already have team leaders in 13 states, about half the red states. That's that's our goal to get all the red states focused on the issues that matter and the way they matter at the time they matter. So you have that the out-of-control crime, out-of-control trannyism, out-of-control violent youth, mental illness, zombies, suicides. And then, of course... There's the other homicidal behavior, the medical profession in America's hospitals. I want to revisit that uh, with our next guest. This interview is sponsored by Liberty Suppressor. So we talked about how much I love guns, and I really do. Um, Again, guns alone aren't going to save us, but it is important to know how to defend yourself. Well, you got to practice. Or if you just like hunting, you like target practice, you like it as a sport. It is dangerous in one way that the the way the media doesn't talk about it actually it is dangerous in the sense that it could harm your hearing. Um, I know my dad really did lose hearing from not using proper protection, but even then, sometimes it's hard. If you're in indoor range, I use the plugs and the muffs over it, and I have a huge um, startling reflex, and I hate it. I just I just hate it, especially if someone's shooting forty five next to me or three fifty seven Magnum. I just, I can't handle it. Um, so one thing you can do is, at least for your weapon, is to put on a suppressor, a silencer. I didn't realize that in most states, it's actually legal. Um, even blue states. It's, it's really California, Illinois, and a couple of northeastern states that have banned them. Most states, they are legal. A suppressor silencers can reduce the sound of gunshots by up to 30 decibels. Um, Liberty Suppressors is a company that specializing that specializes in creating state-of-the-art, durable sound suppressors and silencers that are affordable so good prices, and they're lightweight. Okay, so they don't mess up your, um, you know, your 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 hand grip, your your 
Trigger Control. They offer excellent customer service. They're committed to helping you in every step of the way in making that purchase. I have mine for my 9mm uh, coming on the way soon. All of their products are made in America. They're designed to last a really good value. It's important to protect our hearing when using firearms as we learn to protect our bodies from bad guys and jailbreak. Liberty Suppressors is the company I recommend for the highest quality durable suppressors. So visit Liberty suppressors.com today that's liberty suppressors.com today to enjoy your firearms with confidence so we're talking about the culture of death the culture of homicide with the mental illness and the school shooting and the tranny stuff and the violence we see in all of america's major cities ironically right in the doorstep of our congressmen This is stuff that permeates the culture that even if you try to fix things at a governmental level, it won't immediately solve the societal problem engendered by years worth of those policies being unrivaled and unopposed. But then we have another more insidious, heartbreaking form of genocide that we've been dealing with, and that's the hospitals. And we haven't revisited this in in, in quite a while. We spent a lot of time 12 to 18 months ago on this, you know, thankfully COVID has died down, but this is going to reverberate long term because what we saw this is not just COVID. It was the lack of treatment, the medical kidnapping, the kicking out relatives, the contraindications, known contraindications, giving people things that didn't make sense, the remdesivir, the the early and often use of ventilators, the illegal DNRs. Just this cruelty, the discrimination of treatment based on their perception of whether someone got got the, the Pfizer juice or not. You deserve to die if you don't act like this. A big theme of our book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, is not just on the governmental policies, but we draw the analogy to the Third Reich on how you can take a Western society. You know, Again, we're not talking about mentally ill. We're not talking about the punks on the streets of D.C., you know, beating people up because there's no deterrent in our criminal justice system anymore. We're talking about accomplished doctors that will just have the spirit of Amalek in them, just this, this spirit that permeated this, this zealous bloodlust that we have to root out any helpful treatment, give people treatment that any layman knows didn't, didn't work and was dangerous, this broader sense of that if you don't go along with our medical public health nationalism, you don't deserve to live, denying organ transplants to people, all of this stuff, that's still with us. That has not gone away. And whereas we focused a lot of attention this legislative session on fighting mandates, trying to block the technology for these shots, trying to, you know, at a federal level, obviously deal with the PrEP Act and the NCVIA and the gain of function and the bio labs and all this stuff. But what do you do when the culture permeates the medical system, not just HHS and NIH and DARPA and BARDA, but your local hospital, your doctor thinks that way? What, what do you do with that? What do you do with a society like that? And this is part of our reawakening that we need and this reckoning that we need, this reaffirmation of the Nuremberg Code and a Nuremberg trial, whatever form that takes. So for all my talk, there's actually been someone who's really been trying to do this. And it's someone that I really should have introduced to you guys long ago. The two biggest issues we face are the biomedical terrorism, but also the political persecution. And that's kind of catalyzed through January 6th. Brad Geyer is an attorney both for families who lost loved ones in the hospital and for you know people wrongly targeted for January 6th or over-prosecuted. For, uh, for years, he's been partner at Former Feds Group, formerfedsgroup.com. Check it out. What's a former Fed? He worked for the Justice Department for 21 years, dealing with science fraud, procurement fraud, war zones. Um, and now he's dealing with civil rights, crimes against humanity, and, uh, and other forms of fraud with COVID, as well as defending 
those who are prosecuted and persecuted on January 6th. So he really sits at the nexus of both of these important issues. And man, we're not going to have enough time to even scratch the surface today, but you will really enjoy what he has to say. So with no further ado, Brad, thanks so much for waiting patiently on the line. Thanks so much for what you do. And we really appreciate you joining us today at Blaze Media. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. And thank you for uh, really uh, assuming leadership on this issue and coming out in such a clear-eyed way um, in branding this for exactly what it is. You were one of the first. So we obviously, we have a couple chapters on this in our book just to give people a flavor of the voiceless COVID widows. Um, you know, we, we just go on. We go on as a country. You lose a couple hundred thousand people in the hospitals, a country of 330 million. All right, we go on. But so many people in their 40s and 50s and certainly older were put in the grave needlessly from something that should have been on the level of pneumonia, even, even if it was a little bit worse. Especially the younger people should have easily come out of this um, at some point. But, you know, they wound up being dead within a week in these hospitals, uh, sometimes languished a little longer. You have something that you're dealing with, the Remembrance Project. And I want you to t- take as much time as you can to give over the work you're doing, both on the legal side of the hospital genocide, but also on the remembrance for history and posterity, what happened so we could make sure this never happens again. So um, I hit the panic button. Uh, I saw signs of us sliding into crimes against humanity in March of 2020. Um, Flashing forward to the summer of 2022, um, I'm sorry, 2021, um, summer 2021, I pretty much was ready to throw my hands up because it just seemed like everything was uh, declining. So I handed off the reins of what was then our nonprofit at formerfedsgroup.org and got a management team in there. Um, and I tried to find a J6 case that had all the elements that I thought would most effectively um, push forward uh, the concerns that we had. So I picked up the Ken Harrelson case. Um, we very quickly on the nonprofit side, C.C. Blakeman, um, Adam Gertner, and others began uh, a reach out to victims in hospitals. Flash forward till now, we have hundreds of members. We've documented, recorded interviews um, from survivors and next to kin. I believe we're over 700 recorded interviews now. Um, we're uh, storing those at formerfedsgroup.org backslash cases. Uh, we ran out of room, so our 2.0 follow-on cases are at chbmp.org. Now we're in the process of uh, putting new cases on state chapter websites. Because as you know, Daniel, um, you have to have your information stored redundantly all over the place because you and I both know about the extensive efforts that were made to, to uh, cancel us. Uh, really, those efforts really began in earnest, I would, I would say, right at the beginning of the uh, COVID, quote-unquote, pandemic. Um, are, you know, why, why are we doing that? Um, well, first off, these widows, and we, we call them uh, fondly uh, the, uh, uh, the wolf pack widows, also the wolf pack cubs, um, their children, um, they literally were shut-ins. They were, you know, the, the system, whoever designed this assumed that they would just basically crumble and, and, and turn to dust. They never expected that this constituency would form up and behave in such an absolutely savage, magnificent manner. These people are absolutely courageous. They're tireless. And right now we have we have chapters in pretty much every state. We had a um, rally in San Antonio. Uh, everybody was overwhelmed with how many people came. Um, 
we had a support group meeting last night that had about half the number of people who are usually there. And we're like, gee, we, we, we wonder what's wrong. And we realized that many of the people who came to San Antonio drove from all 50 states. They actually drove. They had their primary breadwinner tortured and killed in hospitals. And they picked themselves up. They got in the car. They put their families in the car. And they drove to San Antonio. And we all met for a, a rally. We're recording these accounts. Um, we are taking a page. Uh, when we were originally planning on what to do to, to, to basically fight what we thought could be a last fight for uh, American hegemony, the nation, um, uh, civilization, really, uh, because the slide really looked that bad. Um, we're thinking about what our obligations were. Yes, we wanted to create um, a coterie of law firms and reduce their costs and reduce their risk for taking cases and filing on, them, uh, on our behalf. We also wanted to create a system for referring these homicide cases to state uh, prosecutors. We also wanted to create a system for referring these cases to federal prosecutors, regardless of how interested they were in them. Frankly, they're not interested. No, nobody returns their calls. We also wanted to um, preserve history uh, for some future generation when they're trying to figure out what the heck happened. Um, you know, if there's such a thing as Holocaust studies departments, um, maybe they'll turn some attention uh, to what happened in the United States from uh, March of 2020 uh, to whenever this ends because it's still rolling on. So that's kind of like we, we took a comprehensive approach. Um, and uh, I believe that right now the, the, the system doesn't really, it doesn't have the capability to see that we exist. Um, a lot of that was, was, was sheer planning. A lot of that's proprietary and I won't share. Um, but I believe that right now we are the most powerful civil rights movement that's ever existed. And I believe that that I would include the 1960s in that we have somewhere between 10,000 and 50,000 members, as you know, Daniel, because you were crucial in this effort, the early uh, treatment effort from April of 2020 to current, really. Um, we estimated that our group, uh, our, our, our news groups on Facebook were somewhere between 200 and 250,000. Now we're in the pro process of reintroducing those to each other. Um, and uh, in the next two weeks, we're going to start reaching out to the J6 community. Our, our Wolfpack widows are, are fully understand what it's like to have your family ripped apart by government action and government systems. Um, and uh, I anticipate that they'll be expressing their support to members of the J6 community who are also caught uh, in large part of government systems ambush on J6. Yeah, and obviously those are your two two buckets that you're working on. And, and again, they, they represent the greatest threats to our life and liberty, each one. I mean, the medical system is life. You can't be pro-life without having a medical system that's compassionate, that's actually free market and not manipulated by the government um, where they're incentivizing death and disincentivizing life. Um, and then obviously with J6, that's that's the liberty, you know, criminalizing our, our political views. So my question to you is legally. So you explained, you know, obviously we have to record this for history and we're, we're a strong believer in that. But legally, what do you do when you have the PREP Act where they absolved everything of liability? How do you even have a legal case against anything? What? Give me an example of what sort of things went on in the hospital that you feel you could engage in, uh, that, that you could you could uh, have a, a lawsuit. Um, I know you mentioned criminal, um, but that's a lot harder to prove, obviously, than, than a civil uh, charge, which they're exempt from. Um, how could we prove certain... Um, you know, malice, willful misconduct that would not be covered by the PREP Act? So my goal, you know, I am an attorney by trade, but I didn't do this um, for the benefit of, my, in fact, it's been, it hasn't been helpful at all to my attorney practice, but we all have to make sacrifices. Um, with the PREP Act, which gives um, many levels of immunities, uh, 
efforts to do the same. Florida, for example, um, extended immunities uh, for some reason. We don't really know why. Extended uh, immunities even further. Um, uh, They've made almost every effort to cut off and to immunize these crimes. Um, And so what we have been doing is basically creating uh, a system of widows who are allowed to, who, who donate their time to lower the costs for law firms to be able to evaluate cases and be able to prepare cases. We have uh, a widow, widower who lost his wife, Christy. Um, she was in her thirties. They have multiple children. Um, she was tortured and killed in a hospital in Pennsylvania. He's devoted his time to building a software program that allows widows to basically digest billing records from all different forms Mm. and uh, it generates reports that can be easily reviewed by by law firms. One law firm estimated that it would save them about 75% of costs during that case. The other thing we do... So so you can review them to find what? Um, Okay, so what... I mean, I think what's going to happen, and again, we're 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 sort of like supporting these law firms that are beginning to file cases in the states. Right now, we're in California, Michigan, and Texas. California, Matthew Tyson, I believe he has over 30 cases filed. He just got through motion to dismiss on his first case. We're going to see what happens there. Um, we have other attorneys, including Tom Renz. Um, who are filing cases and working with local counsel to file cases all over the country. Um, I've served as local counsel on three cases with, with Robert Barnes. Uh, part of what happened uh, this Saturday and Sunday is there was a companion meeting of attorneys going on in Georgia, kind of wargaming out different scenarios, coming up with different theories. I think what it's going to come down to is willful neglect willful action um, combined with state consumer fraud statutes, maybe some RICO. And if we get as many cases filed as we can in front of as many judges as we can, and we get the word out that we're in a crimes against humanity environment, we're going to get more courts thinking creatively. Among the things that we have seen, and these were uh, aggregated by um, uh, our hundreds and hundreds of members, were 25 points of similarity where, and pretty much everybody's in agreement with this. Wait, Every 25 points victim, of similarity to what? Similarity of uh, suggesting that, that what we have here are crimes against humanity in terms of patient care to these people who are essentially tortured and killed. So describe some have, of them that, you know, I mentioned a few of them, illegal DNRs, the remdesivir, um, kicking out family members. What, what were some uh, some others? We have isolation of the victim from the victim's family. Um, the stories are varied and absolutely chilling, and it's best to, to, to allow the, the, the widows, the survivors, to tell you themselves. They're all, there's 700 accounts right there available for everybody to see. Strict adherence to early use authorization protocols, even when they're uh, counter to uh, what's best for a patient. They all seem to have known it. Denial of alternative treatments, just a completely oppressive blanket, an, inabil- an inability and unwillingness to, to try anything else other than what's been dictated to the physicians by standing orders. Remember, under the uh, uh, Alternative uh, Care Act in, I guess, about 2010 or thereabouts, there was a mass uh, acquisition of physicians across the country. Little mom-and-pop physician practices were, were uh, acquired by hospitals. Now it's hospitals, hospitalists, and CEOs that are making all these decisions. Yep. And these physicians have these standing orders that are being forced upon them, where if you follow them, you're going to basically uh, sentence your patient in regards to COVID to a withering and torturous death over a period of time that maximizes billing. We have denial of informed consent. Many times they would, or we, 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 just an example, people would write no remdesivir, no vent, on their arms and black magic marker, mm. and the hospitals would ignore this. We've documented this. Wow, Gas so, so that, that would not be covered by the PrEP Act. 
that's that's our position, and um, there's there's many permutations of this, and we're going to be going after this in every single state of the union. We have removal of communication devices. They would they wouldn't recharge devices. They would lose devices. Um, they, in efforts to cut off the victim from their family. We have dehumanization, extensive dehumanization. Our Holocaust departments around the country are going to, you know, when, when, when we can arrange this marriage of their expertise with these victim accounts, I'm very hopeful they're going to be able to break new ground there. We have rapid oxygen supplementation increase. There seems to have been a concerted way to, to um, uh, step up oxygen supplementation to maximize uh, the chances that you get the patient on remdesivir, that causes organ failure. That that gets on onto the um, onto the vent. We're studying this now. It's very complex, and it follows the same pattern in all 50 states. We have refusal of hospital staff and doctors to communicate with the families. Whole array of, of uh, schemes that they engage in to do this. We have dehydration and starvation. This is this is reported by almost every single one of our victims. Yes, they were starved. I, I want you to describe that. What does that fluid. mean? It means that they don't get water. They don't get fluids. They're begging for water. We have tapes of people begging for, for, for a drink. That's what it means. So, so stop right there. We've documented this all. Because this is something that we saw a lot. I want you to know, I want you to give over, how much of that was this maniacal fear of getting COVID so they didn't want to interact with them, even though they had vaccine mandates, especially the second year, obviously, and they knew it didn't work, but it, it worked and didn't work at the same time. Um, it worked to screw people over and force them to get it, but it didn't work enough to say, all right, well, I'm, I'm immunized, so I'm good to go. Or how much of it was just like, you deserve to die? Uh, well, again, we're going to have to unravel that, right? I mean, that's what grand juries are for. That's what yeah. um, state governments requiring mass disclosures of all these documents that are hidden in hospitals um, so they can be reviewed as for. This is going to be a, you know, this is going to, the, the next decades in the Holocaust uh, departments and, and, you know, uh, the genocide experts, and uh, the, they're going to have a lot of work to do. And I'm not even done. We have restraint abuse. Patients were, this is just endemic. They were being given all kinds of medical restraints shot with everything you can imagine, typically over 50 to 55 drugs. We, we have our, our, our members are going over all their, all their records and documenting this, creating reports. We have, and also physical restraints where they're actually, you know, strapped to bed. We have denial of the bathroom. That's very common. We have not emergency ventilation. There's too many examples to give here. They came up with every creative way possible to vent patients because they get a thirty to fifty thousand dollar bonus for venting, and then all billing that comes after that has a premium associated with it. We have palliative care pressure. Incidentally, anyone listening to this, the best way, the only way, in many instances, to get your your patient out of a hospital is to call in um, call in hospice. That's the only way to to um, disrupt these uh, systems. Um, they're isolated even in death. So like the bodies are, are nobody can get access to the body. Nobody can get access to the, you know, belongings that, 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 uh, uh, the patient had pictures that may have been up, um, police security involvement. So, and incidentally involvement by the courts, we have state courts that were, that were widows begged and pleaded to get access, access, not only for them, but for uh, pastors, for nurses, for physician experts. And there were a whole variety of schemes that were engaged in to prevent access to the client. Infections and injuries, broken nose. How does somebody get a broken nose? A face where their, black is, their face is necrotic from lying on the bed and not being turned for, for, for days. Um, uh, we had uh, patients with like knots on their heads, um, black eyes, you name it, they got it. Infections and injuries, uh, gross neglect. A lot of these things happened during nighttime shifts. For whatever reason, we don't know why, 
a lot of these emergency events where all of a sudden it's an emergency, the patient has to be vented, it occurred overnight. We want to get to the bottom of that. A lot of this involved uh, travel nursing and a lot that are paid much higher. Our suspicion is that local nurses wouldn't do it, so they. this is what created this travel nursing industry. And also, very sorry to say... Why? Born, Why born would the doctors, run-of-the-mill travel nurse say... I'm going to do things that I know are either contraindicated. You know, someone with slow breathing, I give them more morphine when they're not even in pain. Why? There is an, there is an alternative reality that they're living in that's backed up by these standing orders. Mm. I'll give you just one real quick example. Um, you administer remdesivir. We know that 50-plus percent were dying in the Ebola studies from remdesivir, like the idea that the, our health agencies would give that drug an EUA and then make it the mandatory drug of choice and give a $6,000 bonus plus to this 20% very day. Bonus, uh, uh, to this very day, 20% on, on the gross hospital bill is a crime against humanity. But imagine the healthcare workers, I'm going to defend the healthcare workers now. Who, who believe that they are relying on the best expert advice that's in our public health agencies. They don't realize that those public health agencies have been co- completely agency captured. And they give the remdesivir uh, shot. They give it a second day. They give it a third day. They start seeing um, organ failure. And they say, oh, my God, this COVID is causing the organ failure. And this remdesivir isn't stopping. I better give them some more. So you can go through this entire thing with alternative explanations for a lot of it. But it's some and you have cognitive dissonance, you have confirmation bias, and you have the fact that they have perfect immunity in their eyes for everything they're doing. If you bring in ivermectin, God forbid, and something bad happens that has nothing to do with medical malpractice, those prep act immunities are gone. Right? And they're following government orders in the form of standing orders. Um so, you know, we're going to have to, you know, what, why did it take decades and decades and decades to basically figure out what happened in German society that allowed these deaths, you know, and also Poland and Russia and all these other places to allow the, this death camp system to, to emerge? What happened? It took decades to unravel that. What we're trying to do is embolden the markets and the systems, the counter systems, to start to, to allow really smart people, like for every one of you, as you know, Daniel, we need a thousand more. And we need, need them going over the evidence. We need them going to developing the language, developing the theories, developing the working theories, uh, engaging in thought exercises. Like, let's face it, this is really at the end of the day, right? Because we're, we're struggling to, to garner meaning for something that's like extraordinarily mystifying and confusing. It is it is shocking. I mean, and, and and again, we're talking about this even before we get to the vaccines. I mean, that's a whole nother cohort of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, just for your benefit, Brad, literally, as we're on the air now, our buddy Ed Dowd came out with his report, his economic report, estimated cost of the vaccines. Uh, they estimate in this is just for 2022. So more of them were actually in 2021 because there were more vaccines given. 300,000 excess deaths, 1.36 million disabilities, 26.6 million injuries, and a total economic cost, um, you know, in the labor force and things like that of 147 billion. So none of that is what we're talking about here in the hospitals, which is still going. On So what sort of policy changes do we need? Obviously, we know you need to absolutely make sure that you can bring in outside licensed physicians to administer at your own cost, your own liability, um, alternative FDA approved drugs in Florida. They will be passing up. I think it's S-252 has a provision, you know, ensuring that. Very few states are we even succeeding in passing that. But what are some other things that need to be done at the state and federal level, policy-wise? Oh my gosh, um, it's so we're we're in the, the the state of agency capture in the state and federal government right now is so bad. 
um, that's that's one of the problems is it's not really clear how to how to basically. Um, well, what about what the incentive? The incentive you're talking about about remdesivir and ventilators. Is there a bill that someone like a uh, you know Thomas Massey could introduce now that would deal with that incentive? Uh, I mean, I can think of a lot of things. I mean, they should take remdesivir out of the protocols right sure. now. Like, like that should never be used again. Um, so that would be number one. Number two on vaccines, nobody under 40, uh, well, let's just say, let's just take an easy one. Anyone under the age of 18 should never get a vaccine. And there should be state laws that are being passed to make it a crime to inject uh, somebody under the age of 18 with an mRNA vaccine. Yeah, I mean, really anyone uh, at this point, but, but yeah, I, well, know, yeah, I mean, but, but we've got to figure out where you can start. get. Exactly. I mean, it's really problematic. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to know what, what to trust. I mean, I saw this TikTok bill and, and it seems like as usual, they've, they've stuck, you know, tricky provisions in, in the TikTok bill. Is it's just, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of this, by the way, has to do with lack of enforcement, procurement fraud, grant fraud, science fraud, and lack of enforcement and competition. So how we ever allowed hundreds of media companies to go down to a big five or a big four, yep. how we allowed the federal government to be basically suppressing First Amendment rights through social media companies and big media. I mean, these are massive problems. And until that stopped, and until you reestablish the public square, which you're a hero in doing, what basically what they did is they monopolized the public square. Hmm. No, that's no, that, that's what they did. They monopolized the public square. I love how you say that because, you know, we're always talking about, you know, I'm a big f- believer in the free market, and I'm trying to explain why we need policy action against things. And it, it sometimes looks like you're mandating things in the private sector, but you're actually remaking it after they broke the private sector because, for example, you know, green energy, you know, electric vehicles – Electric vehicles are like vaccines in the sense that the government not only, you know, somewhat mandates it and they, you know, subsidize it and they give headwinds to, to fossil fuels with tailwinds to this and headwinds to ivermectin, tailwinds to, to the vaccines. And obviously in the case of the vaccines, they indemnify them, probably violates the Seventh Amendment to the extent that they do it so extremely market it, fund it, distribute it, partner with it to the point that they're getting $400 million in royalties from Moderna. I mean, right. it's it's a total cesspool. But on top of all of that, you're mentioning a point. They monopolize the public square, meaning if you use the boot of the federal government to say you will die if you don't get this person's product, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's – um. Uh, vaccines, you're creating the market for that. If I have a stupid product that would never get off the ground and the government creates a public square to fuel the market, th- there's no free market there. And um, that's that. I really like that term, monopolizing the public square. We're almost out of time here, Brad. And I know this is very unfair to you because this needs another half an hour, really another hour. But just real briefly in a few minutes, could we, I want to change gears could you just give a summation of what new information we're finding from these videos with January 6th? What, what picture it paints from, from a macro sense, not any one client of yours, but, but broadly what happened that day and, and what we're seeing from Tucker releasing that, I'm assuming that's just a fraction of the videos. Yeah, so they released us 14,000 videos. Um, turns out there's 44,000 videos. Uh, Speaker McCarthy has announced that he's going to release that. There's a few kiosks that are open. Very few people have got access to that. They haven't really figured out how they're going to actually accomplish getting that to the defense, let alone get it to the public. Um, in Oath Keepers 1, we spent a lot of time uh, differentiating the East and the inside of the Capitol from what happened in the West. In essence, in the East, there's almost no violence. 
there was a coordinated push through at 157, 158. It really only required, in terms of moving barriers, maybe fewer than a dozen people. Um, aside, and then at 235, when the national anthem was being sung and the Oath Keepers were walking up the steps, there uh, during the last two stanzas of the national anthem, there were there were a group of goons, provocateurs, suspicious actors, whatever you want to call them, that sprayed down, hosed down police that were left remaining in front of the Columbus door. They entered. Aside from that, and the Oath Keepers then, these provocateurs came down and then escorted the Oath Keepers up to the door. 30 seconds later, the door is open from the inside through a group of people that came through the upper west wing door. That was the second door, Columbus door opening. The first one was at 225 for the group that came through um, the plaza doors after running red glasses breach at 213. So when we've established, we've had experts look at that. We've reviewed every single bit of evidence that we had of the 14,000. There's, there's very little violence at all. The West is a completely different scenario. The Rams breach happened at roughly 1247 to 1253, right around the time explosive devices found at the RNC. Um, that caused a disruptive break in communications, U.S. Capitol Police communications channels, Ops 1 and Ops 2. Keep in mind, the entire body of the protesters were at the ellipse. President uh, Trump did not stop speaking till 110. At the shortest amount of time it took you to get to the Capitol, where they would have got there, the crowd would have begun arriving at about 140. So from 1247, the group went to in front of the stage. We have inside police, U.S. Capitol Police sources that have told us that that there were reinforcements that were held in abeyance um, and they weren't allowed to respond until after they got to the architectural stage. At that point, you do see police abuse and misconduct um, and you see undercover police. Uh, we've now captured undercover police uh, cheering and chanting with the crowd, pushing the crowd up the steps. Um, so this came out in the trial. In, in, in one of the cases, uh, I think the Epic Times had an article on that, that the prosecutor admitted there were three metro, they weren't Capitol Hill, they were metro police that were saying, go, go, go. Yes, and there's, you know, we pretty much, I, I, we think there's as many as, well, we're, we're pretty darn sure that there were undercover agents from more than one federal investigative agency, uh, like a substantial number. Uh, we, we now have evidence and strong suggestion that there are somewhere between 30 and 50 from MPD. These are three of those. Now, getting to the body cams, which only come out recently, there's, an, there's a compressed series of events that happen at the tunnel by the way, defense counsel, there's no way for them to understand what, what happened there because we've really only begun the process of analyzing it. But mm. the bottom line was a lot of the people believed that they were acting out of self-defense. The police um, engaged in extreme forms of misconduct yep. and use of force that is completely outrageous. But this is what we've just discovered, and this is why many defense counsel are filing motions to try to get the courts to slow down because yes. we're, our job as officers of the court are to protect the courts. And what is You didn't emerging have all the information. In, in other words, I just want to, you know, a lot of people don't know what the Capitol looks like if they weren't there when you talk about it West and East. The reason why we keep talking about West and East is because what we're trying to prove is that the East, there really wasn't much going on. It's what you would expect. Any conservative protest, which never gets violent. Um, there were some provocateurs there. But in the, why was the West so insane? And you're saying what, yes. what, what was discovered from these videos that you had no access to for these two years you've been defending people is yes. that what, – what was the time? It was, it was like around 1.30 where, where, they, where they fired that gas canister? Yeah, you're referring to, you're, you're referring to Officer Tao. This became public in January in the Big O. Barnett trial. Um, it, it, he comes in – well, I'll just cut to the chase because we don't have time. The important thing is at one one twenty six. He instructs somebody to lob a 40-millimeter round into the scaffolding, it fought, which is dumb. It, and he's done outrageous things the entire day, like the body cam is like an indictment. And 
it, it falls short and it wipes out the entire line um, of police officers who begin this who begin to spontaneously vomit. That's why the line broke there. But that wasn't the first time that happened. We think that Officer Sicknick got hit indirectly by uh, that comes up on Officer Chapman's um, body cam. There's another break in the line that happened earlier that shows up on Officer Smiley's body cam. There's just an immense amount of video review that has to be done. And getting back to the whole issue of monopolizing the public square, mm. World War II, you have hundreds of uh, historians that have different versions and, 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 and different theories for why World War II happened. And they're all right. What the government did was is they picked one version and that version uh, had as its tenet that the protesters were 100% responsible. Yes. And then they, they declared a monopoly on that particular version of what ultimate truth is. And then what they did is they concealed everything and they, and they basically sealed everybody up with um, uh, uh, protective orders that made it impossible for this stuff to get out. They could engage in crowdsourcing inside the FBI with its 30,000 agents of the Department of Justice. They could review all the stuff and share information, but defense counsel couldn't. So the 1,000th U.S. Department of Justice team uh, case filing, that particular yep. prosecution team could benefit from the prior 999. But the 1,000th defense team that did it was inventing the wheel you know, for the first you, you time. You had no access. You were flying blind. You knew you had clients that were good people, often, you know, former military, firefighters, um, never had a criminal record. They, they, you know, didn't come to do anything. And then at the end of the day, they're a terrorist. And they don't even know how they got pushed in. Didn't certainly didn't have any criminal intent to do anything. Um, and then somehow they get roped into this and we're trying to figure out how did that happen? Cause you know, right away when, when I start, started seeing it coming out January 6th, I was doing an interview with my buddy, Steve Dace, and we started seeing things and, and we left it off because like the notion that conservatives get violence, I mean, you couldn't get them to get violent if you tried. So how did that happen? And yeah, you, you know, obviously you had a, a couple bad apples probably in there. It's a, you know, mixture of a bunch of things, but that wasn't enough fuel to create what happened. Um, even on the worst day. So now we're seeing some sort of confluence of some degree of pre uh, premeditated acts by whatever federal agencies were involved in provocateurs, along with some sort of mixed mixture of a Gettysburg scenario where there was an accidental fight um, from a chain of events that seeped down from different actions the police took that some were mal malicious, some were kind of panicked because of the position that they were put into, which possibly was done by design, and boom, 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 you have a chain reaction, and that that just creates a whole different picture of the people there and what happened the before, during, and after than some sort of planned right-wing insurrection that they were going to zip-tie Pelosi to death and somehow take over the government. You know, did, did I get it kind of right in, in, a, in a brief sense? Yes. So, so the competition analysis is the government declared a monopoly and took 100% of the network benefits of the mergers of all these different uh, potential uh, actual truths, picked one, and stole uh, hogged all the network benefits for itself. And when, you know, it, in the days that followed, it, it launched a shock and awe investigation where, where that relied on rapid dominance. And as you know, shock and awe was, was a concept that was developed overseas. And I, I actually worked at the convergence between the overseas yeah. war zone, procurement fraud, grant fraud, corruption efforts, and, the, the DOD, and they basically imported that to the United States. They imported and they viewed it. This as a military it. strategy. Excuse me. No, that that's very creepy because you know everyone thinks it's crazy. Oh, yeah, but what it's more creepy than that. I'm, I, 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 I think I can put a wrap this up in a bow for you. So you have all this institutional embarrassment, and the one thing that everybody can agree on is that it's the MAGA's fault because they all hate the MAGA. You recognize that from any point in time? Like yep. you talk about scapegoating. It's like right out of yeah. right, it's classic textbook 101. It's, it's a blood libel. On That's what a that, blood libel is. 
on top of that, you have all these guys that are all in on the DOJ FBI response based on, on uh, uh, techniques that were developed overseas outside of CONUS against non-uniform uh, combatants. And shock and awe is a military strategy based on the use of overwhelming power and spectacular yep. displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy their will to fight. That's what they did to defense councils. And the re- and the white so bad. Like, I don't care about who did it. Feds, China, um, Martians from planet Mars. I don't care. It happened. The response has, has sucked up all the DOJ and FBI attention and all the public attention. And it took all eyes off of the killing fields that were the nation's hospitals. Yep. Yep. Getting back to that. And and no one wants to talk about that. And again, we don't have time to get into this. I will a little bit tomorrow. But just so you see, obviously, we know the government foments, you know, insurrections everywhere. They did it in Ukraine. Um, they, they're doing it right now in Israel. I mean, right now, uh, you know, they're, you know, the prime minister there wants modest judicial reform. So you don't have a judicial oligarch like you have there, which threatens the the Western oligarchs. And that's not organic in a, in a country that tiny that you have such problems. It's being fomented by the U.S. government as well as some others. Uh, so it's not a far stretch that at some point they'd say, hey, we're going to do it to our own people. And again, do it in the hospitals, do it on the streets, do it to our lives, our bodies, our political views. This is a pretty grim place to leave it. In the final two minutes, and my producer is going to go crazy here. I'm over over an hour with this show, but it's it's, it's important how does it feel you worked for the DOJ for 21 years in the 90s, the 2000s? You worked there. I mean, you you were on the other side of it. That's why you call yourself former feds. How does it feel the contrast in less than a generation? It's like, wait, I, I was helping the good guys go after bad guys, and now they are the bad guys. I am shocked. I am horrified. I'm traumatized. Um, I can't state this enough. I mean, I was so proud about the former feds concept that in 2007, I started acquiring all the intellectual property. And so I know better than many people what's happened. People are terrified right now of the Department of Justice FBI. It breaks my heart. And one of the reasons why I do what I do, and frankly, it's, it's scary. Make no mistake about it. I don't have to tell you that, is I have devotion to current line prosecutors and current line agents. I know they are good people. I know they are struggling to get out. I know they're struggling against their ASACs and their RACs. I, something, something has attacked us. I don't know what it is. Something has attacked yes. the hospitals. Most of the, uh, the nurses and the, and the physicians thought they were doing the right thing for some period of time. There's some, yes. some strange psychological psyop. something thing psychological. And, and again, a, a lot of it's not like there's some sort of policy. It's almost like spiritual warfare. Satan works off of evil. If people act evil and there's not enough good people standing up, Satan goes and accelerates the success of their work to an unnatural level. It ties into all these school shootings, the cultural rock gut, up is down, right is wrong, criminal is victim, victim is criminal, man is woman. I mean, this is this is crazy times, but we cannot share a country with people who are like this. The problem is within, not without. We could talk about China, we could talk about North Korea. The biggest problem is here at home that needs to be dealt with, and you are certainly at the front lines. Brad, where could people go to find out your work and contribute their story? Uh chbmp.org there's a you can a handy little uh uh questionnaire to fill out and that'll that'll put you in the queue we have a massive backlog we get six new cases a day by phone and in the wake of the conference i understand we got 25 new requests for interviews um you know uh and uh the not the nonprofit uh is on at former feds a lot of the cutting edge stuff that we're doing in terms of trying to educate people on how, how January 6th and, uh, you know, hospital homicides and the vaccine all fit together. Um, we kind of lead on that, uh, on the, on the at former feds account. Um, and, 
I'd like to, for your audience, uh, I, I'm sure they know this, but I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of you because if it weren't for you being an independent journalist and just mercilessly going after the story, going after the truth, you are, you are the keeper of the flame. And no matter what happens, you have to keep going, keep at it. I thank you on behalf of my former colleagues at the Department of Justice and the FBI. The, the, the current DOJ and FBI have told me, who've expressed appreciation to me for what we're trying to do and they're struggling to get free. Um, for our children, for our grandchildren, I thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on the front lines. And, folks, Daniel Horowitz at StartMail is the email. If you have a question for Brad, to the extent he can answer it, very important. If you're willing to help, again, email me there. Folks, we are out of time. A lot to digest. Play this at half speed. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. Thank you.